might be days before Thanksgiving still, but it's, dang it, it's Thanksgiving week, so the Christmas music has come out uh, here at the Star Wars Report podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the Star Wars Report. I'm your host, Riley Blanton. So glad to have you back for another episode as we talk all the latest and greatest news from that galaxy far, far away and a special guest, which we'll introduce to you right about now. Hey, Mr. Stephen Kent, uh, you've been on a few times. Welcome back to the Star Wars Report. You scruffy-looking nerf herder, it's you again. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, we're we're back, and you're back, but it's out. It's how the force can fix the world. We're going to talk about it after the news segment. But man, congratulations! It's doing really well. You've been all over the on the, the on media. the book or fixing the world, Riley, because I think the world has been fixed. And uh, no. you know, congratulations <laughs> to all of us. Right, well done. <laughs> we did it. We did That's it. That's <laughs> all you need. That's all you need to do. <laughs> No, I um, I, I have to I pseudo apologize. I actually I refuse to apologize for that intro. I I just found the these awesome Christmas Star Wars mashups, and literally today, Stephen, is when we broke out the Christmas music and started uh, playing it here at the Bland household. So I feel like I have mm. been assaulted prematurely <laughs> by Christmas music, yeah. and I am upset. Yeah, well, well, man, I, but seriously, I'm. Uh, you deserve a big congrats because this is a big deal. I'm, I'm so excited for you, um, and and the success that this book has had in its launch week. We've been talking about it. If you guys haven't listened to last week's episode, you absolutely must. It's um, basically a primer, my sort of um, book commentary. More than it was more of a commentary than review um, on some of the concepts from some core chapters of the book. And Stephen, we'll get into that, but you know what? First, it's it's high time. We're way behind. We got to catch up in the news. Something to report. Data have the news. Data brought to us by the Botham spies. Can send a clear transmission. There it is. Listen, listen. All right, guys, we're kicking it off with some uh, some theme park news. Actually, we're we're uh, getting close to my nerdy Disney home here, um, and we're talking Galaxy's Edge because the recent. There are a few tidbits on the recent Q4 uh, earnings report that Disney does, these quarterly reports, and that's often where we'll get little tidbits of information that kind of at least is usually a little bit more concrete than the wealth of rumors. If, if you, Stephen, if you think that Star Wars rumors, fan site rumors are crazy, just wait till you get to Disney fandom, like Disney Park fandom. It is hilarious. <laughs> so it's I can only imagine, and I'm just going to keep not imagining, you know, so that I don't get stressed out by it all. I know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of crazy, but that's why we lean on these quarterly earnings calls, because often it's the actual people producing, and, and they're talking numbers and money, which is where decisions are made as a business. And so um, the, in the Q4 earnings call, there's a, a, there are a few tidbits, but really the one that was most interesting to me um, was highlighted well by a, a piece in Fanthatrax, um, our good buddy Mark Newbold, but it's about the possibility of expansions coming to Galaxy's Edge. Now, there was a point in the call, Stephen, where CFO Christine McCarthy is going through really boring, and I mean really boring, money stuff. It's mm -hmm. hilariously boring. That's my favorite thing about these Our calls. Our sales and earning reports this <laughs> quarter were bleh. So I have the quote here. You you laugh, but it's, we, ex we also expect that while we continue to pursue strong cost mitigation efforts, certain costs will be elevated in fiscal year 22 versus pre-pandemic level. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I just fell asleep. 
<laughs> For example, inflationary pressure on wages, costs relating to new projects and initiatives, such as... Now, now everybody wake back up, all right? I, I got through the boring part. Such as Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, Avengers Campus, and the Epcot expansion. Now, one of those things is still in the works for us big Disney Parks people, the Epcot expansion. Tons of construction going on over there. But you'd be like, why is she talking about fiscal year 22 financial priorities and increased costs when talking about Galaxy's Edge and Avengers Campus? And of course, we're talking about Galaxy's Edge because that's what we care about. Um, and um, they basically go through a few possibilities of what was in the works in the original Batu. Now, Stephen, I, also, I don't know how much of a Disney Parks person you are, how, how closely you followed the evolution of Galaxy's Edge while they were building it. There were a lot of rumors early on as, as it evolved, and it really, sadly, shrank down in scope throughout its production, but I'm not sure how, how much you followed this story. You know, I, I haven't followed it particularly closely. I mean, I, I know that Galaxy's Edge is kind of small. I, I've been there twice. There's yep. not really that much to do unless you like... I mean, I spent more time just sitting around people watching and soaking in the environment than I felt like I did doing actual activities. Um, but, you know, I, I know that a couple of the things that they're they're talking about being added are... Uh, a speeder bike race. So I, I don't know if that's going to be, I assume that's going to be like a digital kind of thing where you sit on the bike and, you know, yeah. charging at a, at an electronic screen or maybe even like wearing a headset where you feel like you're in it uh, or the, a Bantha ride, yeah. which I don't know what a Bantha ride would be unless they're going <laughs> to dress up an elephant, uh, which would be a very Disney thing to do to uh, uh, dress up an elephant, slap some horns on it and call it a Bantha. <laughs> it would be, it would be kind of interesting, but, but you are right, Steve. So you and I, we've both been, if, if you haven't been to galaxy's edge, I, I think that they were um, constrained by their own ambitions. And I think um, they overhyped themselves a bit, especially because they didn't have the marquee ride, Rise of Resistance, open when it first opened. So imagine, I don't know if you went before or after Rise of Resistance, Stephen, but it's it that is the flagship ride of the entire uh, area. And so when it only had one primary attraction, it, it, it did feel a little bit small for a you know Star Wars theme park. Mm, yes. But I will Quite say just a little a little corner of the universe. It is, but I will say so. We'll pick apart a couple of the. Uh, you mentioned a speeder bike race. These are early concepts that were a part of the original pitch. The idea of a bounty hunter ride or a slow moving bantha ride or the Calicori Club, which is a table service restaurant. Now, so Galaxy's Edge doesn't have a table service restaurant currently. They have Oga's Cantina, and they have the uh, a cafeteria kind yeah. of place. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, and then finally the Ronto Roasters. Oh, and don't forget the Blue Milk Stand. But they're all like designed very much to get you in and out very fast, <laughs> which is the worst part of building a theme park attraction of any kind, because the faster you can funnel the crowd through, the the more things, the more items you'll sell, the more meals you'll sell, and the more people get to go on your ride. So you, the, all the incentive structure is there. Whereas I think you and me, Stephen, are very much there because we want to just sort of enjoy the the ambiance of Star Wars and feel like you're in the Star Wars universe. So it's when you're kind of hustled through the Ronto wrap line and and you grab it and there's nowhere to sit down and you have to like find a random rock somewhere that there's three people in line behind you waiting for a seat. You know, it's a, it, there's a sort of like frantic, frantic atmosphere. It's particularly bad at Oga's Cantina, where they literally give your party, I think it's 
30 minutes, 45 minutes. It's a, it's a small window. It's very, it's very depressing. Yeah. (laughs) And you don't, they don't give you a place to sit down. Yeah. It's it's just, it's just hard, you know, to like really enjoy the place when, when they, they're hovering over you like that. Did I have a great time? The one time I went into Oga's Cantina, absolutely. I lived up every single moment, but you know, I mean, what's the right thing for them to do? Because, Star Wars fans would just camp out in there for hours. That's true. Uh, and I, maybe maybe it's just like we need a, at least an hour, not 30 minutes to sit at those tables and, and enjoy the space. Yeah, there is a... I, I think what what they honestly did was they, oh, the, they over-invested in the attractions and they under-invested in the environment. I, I, th- just my, my hot take. I think... When you see Rise of the Resistance, it is my favorite Disney ride, easily. It's it's an incredible achievement from Imagineering. Um, but I, I, I think the um, the cost of what probably went into that ride is evident by the lack of a table service dining environment. And, and honestly, the idea of making a large-scale, huge, um, multi-story uh, dining attraction and basically make Ogus Cantina, but it can't be a hole in the wall. It has to be a legitimate, giant, multi-tiered, multi-story <laughs> building. And I think that would have actually made it really cool because you know it, it would be amazing, Riley, in. if when uh, first of all they would need to have waiters mm-hmm. that almost were like. Have you ever been to Myrtle Beach? That there's this place called Jack Astor's. I haven't. I feel like I've heard about it though. It's it's Jack Astor's. The entire shtick is the the wait staff are mean to you, and <laughs> I would like them to come up with a nice middle ground between Jack Astor's and Galaxy's Edge, where they are not exactly fawning and polite to you, but remembering that they're still in Disney World. Mm. So you know, being a little bit crass, they're offering you some spotchka, and then <laughs> and then fights break out in the restaurant between patrons, but they're actually actors. And then you could watch someone like Gina Carano's character just like have a brawl with somebody in the middle of the restaurant. Dude. Uh, that would be incredible. That would be that would be amazing. Are you kidding me? I'd love that. That would be so that would be so cool. And I think there's a way that you could do it. I mean like Kids go to the Indiana Jones show all the time. Yes. So as long as it's understood that there will be some like play violence in the restaurant, <laughs> I think people would have a great time. Yeah. No, I think so. I, I think that would be um, a good way to do it. And I think it's just capacity issues. Um, for a, a land like Star Wars, it always the the crowds have always been the biggest problem at the parks, and it's the biggest problem when you're talking to try to have an inverse immersive. Star Wars environment. It's just tough to do with those kinds of crowds. So I hope that they are going to do the um, the dining expansions. I honestly think it would be a good table service experience uh, would be amazing in, in a Star Wars context um, where you can be there for more than 15 minutes and sit down <laughs> where you're allowed to sit down. That would be good. Oh, Lord. Um, but I, I'm not going to end our, our Disney talk there. I also wanted to... Um, There's just a... Uh, a press event uh, at the Galactic Star Cruiser, a preview event. Now, Stephen, I don't know if you know this. I'm sure both of our invitations got lost in the mail. Um, I, was, I was just checking my mail mm-hmm. today. Still, still. I look every single day. Still no sign of Skywalker. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, they, uh, there's, there's been a ton of write-ups. Um, I won't go into the detail. It's a lot of what you would expect, which is like people gushing about the interior design. So I'm sure it has incredible interior design. 
I'm still of the opinion that the price tag is exorbitant and hilariously close to trying to emulate something more like Canto Bite or the Coruscant Opera House more than it is Moss Eisley or the Millennium Falcon, which is kind of interesting to me that they're trying to make a luxury cruiser experience in Star Wars because there are luxury Star Wars experiences, but it's in the George Lucas mythology. Those are always usually like the, the elite bad people. Uh, but anyway, it kind of cracks me up. But I'll, I'll play this little clip here. We've got a first look at uh, as chairman uh, of the Disney Parks Experiences and Products. It's Josh Tomorrow, a, a pretty big wig up at Disney. Um, he gives a sneak peek of the lightsaber training that they're going to be doing at uh, That's serious business. Welcome to the lightsaber training pod. So excited this to have you insane. here. This looks unbelievable. We have been working on this experience to have a whole brand new way for our guests to experience this ancient art of the lightsaber. Can I hold that? Absolutely. That's mine? Please. Okay. Please. Okay. This is for you. So do I turn it on? Or Go for it. I... <laughs> Excellent. So do I turn... I'm sorry. <laughs> it's so awkward. No, you, you don't turn it on. No, you just, <laughs> you just dodge. You don't even need a lightsaber. He's that good. So what you see is that he's walked into this kind of um, what looks like, um, how do you even describe this? It kind of looks like the Jedi meditation chamber room in Revenge of the Sith, but just with purple themes. So very opulent kind of padded room, literally padded room with these um, uh, boxes that, are, that we'll soon discover are the ones that spit out the lasers that are basically tagged with the lightsaber so that you deflect them as they right spit out. Right here. there. Here we go. Oh. All right, so I'm so right you're, right, here, you're right there. Facing you're here. Face off against the remote. So you have a, like a decent cadence. Josh is keeping up well. You see the laser fire. Uh, it's a, like a steady state, so it's sort of like w waving a lightsaber at a laser show more than it is deflecting blaster bolts. But it's cool technology. It fires in different directions, and it knows when you deflect it. It's kind of cool. Makes a little That's noise. That's pretty darn cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was looking at those at those laser bolts. They were they were kind of projecting at them. Looked pretty weak, honestly. Like barely even the strength of a laser pointer. But sure that's a good, a good start. <laughs> I'm sure there's a good that's reason a good for that start. from a health and safety point of view. No, I really do think that they should be pointing red hot lasers <laughs> that you might use to like do welding or cutting metal. Uh, that would at least give people the experience of, of a threat, except there would be a threat. <laughs> But then as it speeds up. Oh, we got our first miss. Oh, oh, missed again. Missed again. Missed again. Missed again. All right. Now he's getting embarrassed. So he stopped. Um, <laughs> so that's guy is a major scrub. I just, well, here's the thing. I only poke fun of this a little bit because it's funny to me that they have the like the president of the Disney parks experiences, like basically number two to Bob Chapek is the guy who's the very typical white collar CEO type that you would expect. Um, why he's like the personality you want to demo this brand new technology to sell this $5,000 two day experience. <laughs> like why don't they hire like a big celebrity or someone who does like a skit or a funny video that'll kind of go viral or something like that. Invite, I don't know. It seems like something Jimmy Fallon would do is like, we're here today at the special preview of, 
I just think they should have brought in Liam Neeson uh, and had Liam Neeson do like a full-throated endorsement of this training program. Uh, but, you know, they're cowards, and so they didn't. <laughs> but then at the same time, I'm, I'm forced to admit, if I <laughs> were the CEO of all the Disney parks, that's exactly what I would do. I'm like, nope, I'm in the video. I'm the one who gets to play with it first. <laughs> so... That would be that would be my take, but it's it's it is cool technology, and we're getting a little bit more of a glimpse of what it'll actually look like. And they some of the most incredible previews. I'm going to link to um, uh, WDW uh, tonight or Walt Disney World News today, I should say. They uh, were there at the press event with their camera on hand, and they had a ton of shots of the entire experience. The coolest stuff, Stephen, has to be the view of the bridge where it really does look, I mean, it, it looks 100% realistic. It's just a beautiful technology um, that, 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 that simulates it, and it looks amazing. I, I've even seen a few other um, uh, videos that have popped up from the event and how there's literally like a kind of a game on the bridge that you can play if you get attacked by TIE fighters and you get to man different stations and aim the laser cannons and fun stuff like that. There's a knob to go to light speeds. So it's, it's, it looks like a really fun experience. Again, it's, a, it's right in line with what I expected, which is they are leading and innovating on something that hasn't been done before. A virtual, basically a virtual simulated cruise, luxury cruise experience without the ocean, but with all this crazy technology. So I, I don't know. Maybe this is just like the precursor to the metaverse and they're way ahead of it. Uh, yeah, it's like all the all the joys of a of a family cruise as well as ruining your credit score uh, <laughs> when you take out a second mortgage to go on the cruise. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder... It does make me wonder, like, how many bank accounts are going to be devastated by by this. I don't know. It's it's. We'll have a link. Well, to it. yeah, there will be a handful devastated, Riley. But I mean, I already know that they're booked out for a couple of months. They are. And uh, I I am just of the belief. I'm just of the belief that the people who have booked these all up, uh, they are not going to see any change in their bank accounts because they probably just have tons and tons of money. <laughs> uh, you know, there will be a couple of people who make an unfortunate financial decision to do this. Uh, but yeah. I, I think that most people are going to be doing I, I think it's just a fact it's going to be a play place for really well to do single tech workers in their 20s uh, and then also just rich people so you know uh, that's that's my class warrior take for the day there you go there you go yeah it's it's fair it is i mean popular enough to where it's booked out through for several months at least i saw some headlines about that but so they're they're I don't think they've had to work that hard to sell this experience because it is selling itself. Like what people have seen so far is enough for people to, to participate. So um, it's, it's, it's Disney pricing something at a, a at a luxury and uh, they're trying to attract people who have that kind of money to spend. So we'll, we'll see if it works. I think the part where I'm unconvinced though, honestly, is I'm unconvinced that it is a luxury experience because I, I'm getting the fact that it's going to be cool. Yeah. But there's been not there's been nothing about the experience to me that has said it's gonna be anything other than plastic and rubber set pieces and a really uncomfortable cot for a bed. <laughs> like 
and and like again like i want to see the food like if you're going to tell me this is a luxury starship i would really like to see the menu items and i would like to be convinced that this is going to be the best food that i've ever had in my life but when i when i imagine being on this place i just imagine plastic the smell of urine and then also (laughs) cafeteria food that's what I'm imagining. And that's the part where they've not done a good enough job of selling me on this. Because um, I would really like to see the luxury if there's going to be a luxury experience. Are you ready, Stephen? Because I want to get your live reaction on the podcast. Because I'm about to shoot you a note on Skype. This is a link to the official websites. Uh, they released this back in the summer, but didn't get a lot of play. But there, okay. there's your first samplings of the menu. Now, this is the best it's going to look. They're professionally shot photographs. It looks like it'd be on the marquee of a fast food uh, <laughs> of a fast food restaurant. And they all show right. You well, them. the shrimp looks like a literal pile of blue poop. So uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. It's blue I don't shrimp. Know if this is like Ewok dung, Ewok <laughs> dung, or something. And then the second, the second menu item also looks absolutely like what your dog would leave in the backyard, except it is bright orange, which would imply that they are not well. The <laughs> breakfast. Yeah, I don't know what I'm looking at here. <laughs> I'm, where, I'm just leaving you out to hang here the, to figure out what the heck this stuff is. Where is the intergalactic steak? I see possibly intergalactic salmon uh, there, with an there, aioli sauce. But it's, but, uh, it's that thing. They're trying to maintain the exotic, the Star Wars-y experience. But they're not just serving like here's steak because you're paying this money. They're not, they're, they're trying to like well, right. spruce they it should, up, and they sh- they should do that. And that's that's one of the best parts about Galaxy's Edge is you know they really do take you out of it from everything from the food available to the way that they describe it on the menu. I think that's I think that's great. So I, I really am curious from a human perspective what it is that I'm looking at here with some of these menu items and to yeah. see if like you know this is actually good or if this is you know somebody ran to aldi and got some food dye and then <laughs> called it an intergalactic meal yeah um, so i color color me curious i i will say though there's one thing disney does get right usually and that's that's the food they they really have done a great job and it's been a recent thing if you're a long time disney parks goer if say you haven't gone since in 10 20 years the last you know, a few years they've really focused on making food part of the experience at the parks. And so whether it's the uh, food and wine festival or something like that, it, even the, the food in galaxy's edge, I'm a pretty big fan of, um, mostly the Ronto wrap. I think it's the single greatest quick service snack. Ronto wrap is so good. And mm. I've, I've started making them at home. I got the galaxy's edge cookbook Nice, and I make Ronto wraps at home. They're very, very good. We also do, um, the butter noodle dish that is in oh, the galaxy's edge cookbook. Nice. And I absolutely adore it. I am looking over one other thing here though, mm. which is I'm trying to get a sense of whether or not these meals are included. Yes. And that's, so the answer, I get the sense that they're not. Oh, really? So uh, what I understand is is the um, the meals are included, um, alcoholic beverages are not. So I think the uh, the sublight lounge you'll see like a concept art of it. That's where they they'll have drinks, entertainment, sabak, uh, sabak, sabak, and mm-hmm. um, I think all of that will be charged. But the actual dinner, por- actual meals are included. 
Okay. If that um, is the case, then I will shelve my complaints. I was just, I was looking here and it's like dinner and food is available and this and this place. And I was like, no, you better tell me that this is, uh, this is absolutely included. Yeah. <laughs> what's the $5,000 for if yeah. not for the meals? Well, you can't, but there is an upgrade that you can't do. Should you just not be spending enough money, you can dine at the exclusive area known as the captain's table where you'll have an especially memorable dinner experience, enjoying extra course, uh, extra courses, the captain's favorite dishes, while seated in a prime location in the center of the Crown of Corellia dining room. Okay. Yeah, and I see that. I'm looking at the what's included list, and it does have your meals in there, but you can also get stuff if you're hungry outside of your primary meals. So that's good. That's there, good. There you go. There you go. Um, yeah, I think... Um, I'll be I'll be intrigued. I, I'm glad we get at least a little bit more of a concrete look, and I will watch the launch with great interest. But um, all right, we let, let's jump into a couple of rumors. Well, this is one of those that jumped into the the trades. Deadline was reporting this first, and now everybody's picking it up. Uh, it's it's news on the Ahsoka series specifically that they have cast Natasha Lou Bordizzo as Sabine Wren. That the Mandalore warrior will join Ahsoka in the upcoming series on Disney Plus. Um, we we got very little, um, I think, compared to what we were expecting. You know, classic fan expectations on the uh, Disney Plus day that they did last week, and uh, we got the Kenobi sizzle, but that had leaked early, so we covered it on last week's show. But that's really all we got, which I think. I, I, it doesn't surprise me because I think they're laying off laying off it a little bit because remember when they announced like 10 series all at once and several of them have fallen apart to include Gina Kronos mm-hmm. probably. <laughs> so I think um, uh, so what we're instead getting now are, are some of these rumors and leaks. Um, so she's been cast as Sabine. I'm not familiar with, with her, but I, I am kind of interested if this is the case, it really does point to the Ahsoka live action series being that continuation of rebels uh, where Ahsoka and Sabine go off in search of Ezra, which is kind of the setup at the end of the final star Wars rebels episode. And certainly based on the timeline could pick up uh, where Ahsoka takes place. So I do you, I, I'll just put a, a simple question to you, Stephen. are you more in favor of, were you a big fan of rebels where you want to kind of see that storyline continued? Or do you think it would be better if Ahsoka had more of a clean slate for her own series? Nope. I think that this is exactly what is needed in the story to kind of understand some of the different gaps that need to be filled. So I'm I'm 100% in on this, and I love the idea of looping in Sabine. You know, my my general belief, Riley, is that Star Wars is being directed towards a big sort of Avengers in-game type event, yep. where we're going to sort of see. Uh, all of these different factors combine from the Mandalorian to the main trilogy characters, uh, particularly Thrawn, and mm-hmm. then an outside force in the Yunsung Vong rebranded as what I believe is called the Gris Kajemini in these new Thrawn books. So they've they've really okay. hinted at the they've really hinted strongly at the idea that there is this outside alien force in the universe that is a threat to the current galaxy in which we exist and that Thrawn is one of the only 
only people who is aware of that threat and was trying to work with the Empire to be ready for that threat. And if you are familiar with the old legends, uh, this would be where the Yunsung Vong come in mm-hmm. as that that outside alien force. So I think that this is what it's all building up towards. So we need to see Ahsoka and Sabine go track down Ezra and we need to see them track down Thrawn and it's all going to go towards I think this big battle with this force called the Grisk hegemony so I, I think that this is where it's all headed and this is a big piece of the puzzle yeah I think it'd be fascinating if they're, if they're able to do that and I think the the Yusung Vong angle is was always fascinating to me because of the way it shook up the um the rules of the galaxy. I thought that. Yeah, that was it was always like imperial warlords fighting, you know, the New Republic. Imperial warlord this, imperial warlord that, and mm-hmm. you know, got to change it up a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that. I, I think it, it, if it's done well, it'd be. T- it's always tough when you're trying to introduce concepts that are outside of the uh, the doctrine of Star Wars, the Lucasian Star Wars. But I feel like because that door has already been opened a lot of times, it, it gives opportunity to good storytellers, especially ones like Dave Filoni, who've worked directly with George Lucas, to do that well. That's always, that's always yeah. the challenge. I, I will say, like, I'm skeptical of that as a direction. I do think that's where it's headed, but I, I really question the wisdom of it because I just don't like apocalyptic stakes, you know? Mm. And I say that as, you know, Star Wars invented the Death Star, so obviously there were always apocalyptic stakes. But, you know, I just sometimes think the bigger this, the, the, the threats that you make, sometimes the more diminished the character interactions can really feel. And so I just, I love small stories like The Mandalorian, uh, so I'm I'm a little bit nervous about the world between worlds and mm. the Grisk hegemony invading the galaxy and forcing the Imperials and the the First Order and the New Republic or whatever to all work together. I think ugh, I don't know. I just think it could be a little bit dicey. Yeah, it's like I say, if it were anyone else heading those stories, I'd be a lot more nervous about it. But In I'm Filoni, ho- we trust. Uh, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> Happy holidays, everybody! Uh, <laughs> I had to, I had to queue up in some of my Star Wars Christmas mashup again. I can't help myself, Stephen. Um, I gotta talk to you, man, about this about this book. I gotta this this whole this book thing. So you wrote a book, didn't you? I sure did. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for reading it. And I, I caught your podcast review of it the other day. It was really moving. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I'm almost glad. Uh, well, you're most welcome. And, I, and I'm I'm almost glad a, a few things that I, I never, uh, you while, while you were writing it, we, t- we would talk from time to time about some of the different topics that you were doing. And I, had, I was able to be at least over your shoulder a little bit as the project unfolded. But I never read the entire book prior to... Um, publishing and i'm so glad that the first way i experienced it was pretty much listening to the entire thing in audiobook form in one go um i couldn't put it down also i was running a marathon but also but also i couldn't put it down i i couldn't <laughs> stop running either <laughs> yeah i was but the but no it was a um it was it was really it really flowed beautifully in audiobook for format and I, i'm a big audiobook guy so i'm so glad that not only is it available on Audible, but that you did the voiceover for it. It was very professionally done. Um, and, I, and I'm and i glad also that it wasn't our first conversation about the book wasn't with you on the show. I feel like I was almost more free to kind of have my honest gut reaction to the book um, just 
by standing up on my own soapbox here at the Star Wars Report um, and talking about Chapter 5 and Chapter 7 especially, which really both just hit me pretty hard in terms of like the core things of Star Wars that are meaningful to me. So if you haven't, like I said, make sure you check out last week's episode um, where I kind of go in depth on my commentary on that. But I just wanted to open up the floor to you, Stephen, and, and, and ask you to talk about the idea and inspiration for the book and sort of your central thesis of why you um, decided to publish this. Well, the central thesis of the book is that we live in a time of sort of old things, the old world order, consensus, the things that we thought we shared in common as a people are all disintegrating beneath our feet. And we see it every time we turn on the news, we see it on social media, we see that we are being sorted into two different countries, two different people. And there are things in this world that used to unite us in in many ways. It used to be civic organizations and outside unaffiliated non-political clubs. It was largely a a, a Judeo-Christian culture that knitted the United States together and sort of gave us not in many ways like a shared politics, but just a shared sense of where we come from as a people and where we're going when we all die. Like it's it's incredibly important when you have those kinds of stories because it gives us all sort of a similar grounds for understanding uh, why we're here and what we're meant to do. Those things are all going away, Riley. It's yeah. a secularizing society and you know your audience can either think that that's good or that it's bad, but it is happening. And what I zero in on here is that we need shared things, we need stories that give us moral lessons and teach us about the best of our our human nature and our better angels. And there is no better story than Star Wars to do that. Uh, You know, we don't live in the age of the ancient Greeks anymore. We don't live in ancient Rome, so we're not going to talk about, um, you know, Zeus, and we're not going to talk about the Stoics. You know, Marcus Aurelius was not a, a fictional character. He was an actual Roman emperor and a wise one. But, you know, the relevance of figures like that are, are definitely not as great as if you were going to talk about Luke Skywalker and how it was that he actually made that impossible shot on the Death Star and what are the principles that you can apply to your own life that allowed him to make that impossible shot and change the course of the galaxy forever. That's Mm. what this book is about. How can you live better? How can you use Star Wars to do it? It's like chicken noodle soup for the soul, (laughs) but it's spotchka. (laughs) Yeah, and in a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) Although I think I want to ask you like a really just fundamental question about it, because I know you've been doing the rounds on some different podcasts and radio, and you've done a lot of press, but I think just very fundamentally, not just because it's popular of its moment, but why Star Wars? Like, what, what is it specifically about this story that rings so true in the various themes that you talk about throughout the book? Uh, well, I mean, why Star Wars? I, there's nothing else for me, I guess, Riley. I mean, I, I'm not... I'm not like a a pop culture know-it-all. I know a little bit about X-Men. I know a little bit about Marvel. But Star Wars is my modern myth. It is my story that I am am almost religious about in terms of my adherence to it and my belief that its characters are wise. You know, I believe that when Qui-Gon Jinn says to Obi-Wan to keep your mind here and now in the moment where it belongs or in the present where it belongs, that that is something that is worth listening to. And when Obi-Wan challenges him and says, but uh, Master Yoda told me I should be mindful of the future, not at the expense of the moment, 
these are great lines. I think it matters when Yoda says, you know, um, you know, size matters not. Uh, you know, the only thing that is stopping Luke from lifting out the X-wing from the swamp uh, is his belief that the Force can do it. I think that it is incredibly wise when Yoda also talks to Luke older, older in life and older in age, and and he reminds him that failure, the greatest teacher, is like Star Wars is full of wisdom. And I don't use it for escapism. That's why a lot of us say to our our children or our nieces and nephews when they're learning how to throw a baseball, hey, do or do not, there is no try. We say these things because Star Wars hits us on another level. And so I, I just thought it was... This old story, four four decades old, spanning multiple generations of families, that give us an, a uniquely, I don't know, a unique opportunity to talk to each other on the same level with one another, with a shared lingo, shared language, and understanding of these characters. Everybody knows who Darth Vader is. You know that gives us a basis for having really tough conversations about how the road to hell is is you know led with good intentions. These things matter, and we need more of that. And and when you say they matter, in, in they when they say I'm kind of digging deeper here a little bit, but when they they matter and how we need more of that. What do you think um, Star Wars now provides? Do you think that it it is this mythology that is still a um, an undiscovered impact on culture that that remains to be remains to be seen? Uh-huh. So. Mm. No, I don't think so. I think Star Wars is is very much like commercialized in the most uh, most essential sense. It is widespread. It has been like you know all great stories. It gets watered down. Um, you know that's true. I think the Disneyfication of Star Wars is going to produce more Star Wars for us. But in some cases, I, I mean this in like some cases, having it be a little bit devoid from the the mad genius of George Lucas and the political sensibilities of George Lucas, I think will sort of lead to Star Wars not being as much of a heavy hitter on philosophy as it has been. That may or may not be true. That's just sort of my gut instinct, but. You know, Star Wars is always going to matter, though, regardless. Um, I do think that Star Wars is falling into the sinkhole of every other thing in our in our lives that are being touched by political polarization. And, you know, you don't need to look any further than The Last Jedi to see how political opinions about things going on outside of the Star Wars world, outside of entertainment, affect how people internalize these stories. I I think it is absolutely the case that The Last Jedi can be looked at as as a case in point of political polarization and politics impacting the way that we interact with films. Star Wars is not immune to this, and it is not going to be immune to this you know just the fact that like disney canned gina carano you know threw like salt right into that wound and it pushes people away from star wars purely on political grounds i do not make a utopian argument that star wars can fix the world i i am making the case that star wars can help fix you star, mm-hmm. star wars yeah. and the philosophy embedded in it can make your life better and when enough of us are happier, when enough of us have more of an equilibrium on our private lives, then as a group, the world will be made better. But it's it starts with everybody's individual selves first. Yeah, it's, I, I'm, I think that makes perfect sense the way you describe it, Stephen. And we were first talking about the book um, 
uh, I, I, this was, I feel like I, I remember you talking about some of these same concepts, like one of the first times we ever met in, in person at, uh, in Vegas <laughs> at a libertarian <laughs> convention. <laughs> <laughs> um, of all, no surprise for you. Uh, but but I do like ha- having dinner and kind of talking about the state of of culture and politics and through the lens of Star Wars that that we see it. It is a. Um, I, I feel more comfortable personally when the values of some of these stories that inspire me are shaping who I am, um, and shaping the culture than more the culture is shaping me and how I, and I'm just viewing these stories through the, that lens instead, kind of the reverse of that. Yeah. And I, I don't remember what year it was when we met in Vegas that one time to talk about this concept, but I've, I lost hope for a little while. I was talking in many ways, you know, in the run up to getting this book proposal chalked up about, you know, my my belief that Star Wars makes us better people and that if more people understood the stories the way that we do, that your audience does, that the world will be better off. But, you know, then not only does The Last Jedi happen and it sort of tears fandom asunder again in a way that I, I've just never seen before, ever. Yeah. Uh, but I also lost my, my closest friendship. You know, my co-host of the Beltway Banthas podcast, we kind of had a left and right thing going on, doing our political Star Wars talk. And my friendship disintegrated uh, during sort of like the middle of the Trump years for reasons which I've said on my pod, I still don't understand, but they did. And I lost, I lost hope, right? Like I lost hope in the ability of Star Wars to purely just bring people together. And it was not made any better by the fact that the rise of Skywalker, I found to be a devastatingly flawed Star Wars movie in a way that even The Last Jedi did not offend my sensibilities. Um, The Rise of Skywalker was just like another gut punch. And I just was like, I don't know if I can finish this book. Can Star Wars do anything good? And then I just had a moment of quiet one morning when I was just sitting with my coffee, just thinking about all this stuff. And then I just remembered that, you know, the sacred Jedi texts, they're not burned. They're always with you. The wisdom of the ancients, the old Star Wars, the way that it's always been is the way that it always will be as long as you keep it with you and don't allow people to destroy it for you. And I, 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 just, I just changed my mindset and it helped me like restore my hope in this story because I believe um, in individual responsibility and control for your feelings. And I think that Star Wars is warning us all about letting our feelings get the best of us. And I, I try to check them and I try to help people learn how to check them in their own lives in this book. Yeah, man, that's, that's heavy. Like, there, there's a lot there, all of which I want to dig into, none of which we have time to do as thoroughly, thoroughly as I'd like. Um, but Steve, you talked about the... Um, the turn in, I think he used the phrase ripped the fandom asunder, and which is, I think, a, a fair way to characterize what happened with Star Wars fandom after The Last Jedi. And it's interesting, I was rewatching Last Jedi today, actually, as I was building my coveted Ultimate Collector's Edition of the Lego Millennium Falcon. Um, so I, that's like my routine. My, um, <clears throat> my mental health sanity moments are spending afternoons <laughs> building lego watching star wars movies <laughs> um it's, it's not a bad spot to be in i'm not gonna we lie. all need we all need something but i i do when that movie came out when last jedi came out and and fandom was so torn asunder i, I experienced very similar feelings even I, not quite as personally but i think um for me i it I, i've never personally recovered in terms of fandom 
at least in terms of online fandom, I've kind of drawn a more of a line between those two, my personal fandom and my sort of online fandom and involvement in creative Star Wars projects and, you know, fan media mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So I've, I've kind of, I had to sort of draw a line between that because um, the the fan media side, and that that's, I've talked about it as we are kind of on our farewell tour here at the Star Wars Report, one of the contributing factors to the um, decision to in the podcast is just the change in the landscape of online fandom. And you can trace that right back to uh, what happened after the last Jedi. And I think it's, if you were listening, you listening to this podcast right now, probably have a very strong opinion one way or the other about that movie. Um, for me, I almost don't care about that as much as I do my, my disappointment in the, in the fan experience and how that my fan experience changed so much. And, over the last six months, Stephen, I would say, in, in some of our conversations that we've had, I've, I've kind of been able to put up a barrier of sorts between uh, this podcast and podcast fandom versus Riley, who sits down at the you know dining room table and builds a bunch of Lego for stress relief and watches the Star Wars movies and kind of re-engaging with the core parts of the story that mean, are meaningful to me in a way that isn't performative, that isn't you know, hashtag content. And that's, and that's really actually reinvigorated my Star Wars fandom a lot. I've been surprised how much I used to never watch, like throw on the Star Wars movies all the time. And and since the pandemic, it's just been a go-to kind of comfort food to, to steal a phrase from the great Steve Glosson. Um, Star, it, Star Wars, Wars makes us feel safe, comfortable. It takes us back to a place where we want to go again. In the spirit of the Mad Men speech on nostalgia, you know, it's it's a wound. Like it's a wound, and that's why people are so agitated when when that wound is is tampered with by new movies that sort of. I don't know, affront their childhoods or affront what they always thought about Star Wars in the past. You know, our childhoods and that safe place of going to Star Wars and watching those tape cassettes with our family, friends, it's real. And these new Star Wars movies and fandom, just like, not not the new Star Wars movies, but modern fandom just exists to always talk about the wound rather than to talk about the joy that we used to have. It's one of my favorite Disney movies. And I, I apologize that this is a little bit of a, like a roller coaster tangent, but no, like one good. of my favorite, one of my favorite Disney movies as of late is that Pixar movie inside out. And it absolutely, it just breaks me every time because the way that I understand Star Wars and many things in my life is the same way that Joy, the character in that movie, has to understand that sad memories and happy memories can can share space and Mm. that her inability to let go of happy memories and let them become sad, uh, that's part of growing up. And that's Mm. a huge part of how Star Wars fits into our lives. But that sadness can quickly become resentment and anger if you don't fill it with new reasons to be happy. And my founding belief, and I'm not, I don't say this to insult anyone in your audience who is childless, but Star Wars lives in children. That's how it stays alive. And I have been able to reroute my fandom in positivity and joy by being a parent, by being a father by sharing these stories, by having Star Wars conversations with my child that are not about which movie is her favorite and which one's her least favorite, like you always have to do with adults. 
and you have to like have like some sort of pissing match about you know mm. what's the more flawed movie because that's all adults ever want to talk about is which one's the worst or which one has the most problems and I'm like oh my god I just want to talk about the light side and dark side of the force and children are how you do that children keep the flame alive and uh, that's just kind of where I'm at and that's what's helped me really anchor this book and bring it forward out of a place of fear because I was very afraid to write it very afraid to write and finish this book and just being a parent and sharing Star Wars is what gave me the courage hmm what was what was what was tough about it the idea of of actually putting this together because I know you've chronicled some of your uh, um and this is where I'm I'm, I'm kind of close to the project so it's it's hard not to uh not to dig in too deep. So tell me if I'm off uh, going out of bounds, but like what, what was the fear there um, about getting the message of this book out? Cause I think that's an important reason to capture sort of why you ended up writing it in, in the first place. Well, the fear is that just nobody's happy. I, I, the fear is that, you know, when you talk to star Wars fans and there are, I, I live on Twitter, like a lot of unfortunate people who, who follow politics very closely. Um, <laughs> The far left of Star Wars, you know, people people who exist in like progressive, you know, hashtag BLM or whatever like that, and then they also have Star Wars in their bio. They're never happy. They they always think that everything is not woke enough. That everything, you know, representation has not been has been solved and as as an issue. All they want to talk about is how you know Star Wars and Disney is still too. Um, still too far off the mark. There's there's never a joy there. So mm. there's always more work to be done. And then with reactionary right fandom, which you know yeah. I come from the political right myself, you know they're ever since Disney and and it's always been there a little bit underneath the surface. But there's just an incredible amount of paranoia, distrust, and fear about the messages of the movie underneath the the regime of Kathleen Kennedy, and and Disney. And there's just a belief that like all of the Star Wars stories and messaging of today are all some part of of a left wing conspiracy. It's like it's mm-hmm. just very strange to me that the far left thinks that these movies are still too conservative, and conservative think that these movies are all of a sudden far too left wing it's it's very bizarre Um, and that just to me is the the problem of political polarization and our inability to to put ourselves in the shoes of others and and just sort of be rational about this stuff so i was very afraid because it just feels like nobody wants to hear actually these movies are still wonderfully centrist actually these movies have stories that we all need to hear oh actually the last jedi has a wonderful story about personal responsibility that everybody needs to try to understand whether or not you like Admiral Holdo or you think that Luke shouldn't have drinking the green milk from the creature. <laughs> you know, it's I, I just Star Wars fans are just like every fandom, they're they're just very quick to go, well, that's a good point, but this. And I, I just I'm I was tired and I, I was afraid of having those fights all the time. But Riley, but I've been really, really impressed taken aback and reminded of the glory and positivity of the majority of Star Wars fans who are not just like Mm. crazy political people on Twitter who are loving this book, who find its appreciation for the saga to be sincere and appreciate that the book doesn't have a political perspective so much as that I defer 
to what Star Wars means for all of my my takeaways. There are, there are elements of my own book that conflict with my political opinions because this book is about how Star Wars thinks of the world, yeah. not how I think of the world. Yeah. <laughs> so there are things in here that I find to be challenging as a reader myself. But that's the call of the of the Star Wars stories to think a little bit beyond your own world and adopt a certain point of view. I, it, it's so encouraging for for me to hear you say that, Stephen, because the um, I, I I very much um, got sucked into that um, very reactionary element of Star Wars um, fandom online. Um, equal equally from both directions, like you point out. I think you put it very eloquently. But my my reaction was a sort of ne- necessity of just pulling back out of fandom. So I, in a way I admire and applaud your courage to like face that, embrace it and know that like a lot of people based on like media figures you you'll appear with or do, you know, you went on a Glenn Beck show, did uh, his radio show and listen, talk (laughs) about a lightning rod figure in, in conservative media. Uh, I know you've done a a bunch of different types of media, but the fact that you're willing to go on and actually talk about these concepts, knowing that, you know, some people are going to, it puts a target on your back in some ways. Um, and you're still like, <laughs> you're just right. consistently, and, uh, and Riley, like that, that reluctance, you know, also just comes from, you know, the world feels like it is on fire right does. now in case you haven't noticed <laughs> yeah. every, everything feels kind of awful these days when it comes to politics and the state of the world. So taking a moment to go, Hey, everybody, we should talk about star Wars. <laughs> it feels, it feels silly. And there's like a certain element of, yeah. Not shame, but like a little embarrassment where I'm just like, oh, man, I don't know if I want to be the Star Wars guy right now. Um, I should. I feel like we should be talking about serious things. But look, there are plenty of people to talk about tax policy and, and you know, how we're going to deal with like counterterrorism and, and political violence and all that stuff. Yeah. We need, we need things that help us order our lives and help us get a grasp of the way that we're receiving the things going on in the world. Because one of the primary messages of Star Wars is that there are things out there that are outside of your control. And you need to be able to recognize mm. which things you do have dominion over and which things you do not. And the things that you do not have dominion over the things that you cannot control you need to let go Mm. and this book is about letting go of certain elements of our political problems and saying hey you can't solve everything you cannot be worried about what is going on in seattle when you have real problems in your home in richmond virginia you need to deal with the things that are right around you keep your mind here and now in the moment where it belongs um, so that's what this book is trying to have people do is just recognize that there are only so many things that you can care about. <laughs> and that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a distinctly stoic value if you, you think about the Greek stoic yeah. tradition as well. No. Let go, Luke, said Obi-Wan. And that was his sort of moment of surrender. I love that. We're getting towards New Year's again, which I'm already looking forward to our annual tradition of blowing up the Death Star at midnight. But every time I, I get chills watching the movie when, um, you know, the ghostly encouraging voice of Obi-Wan, you know, shatters through the speakers and says, use the force, Luke, let go. It's like such a, it's such <laughs> a great, great, and you see, and you see that moment, Luke, it's not like he's not saying focus more to nail the shot because you've got this. It is a, you have to trust the force, trust the higher power. It's not only in your hands. 
Um, and that is like it's a be- there's a beautiful reflection of that kind of sentiment in the in the rise of Skywalker, um, where it's it's Ray fighting Palpatine, but it's not just Ray; it's all the Jedi. Um, that moment, mm-hmm. it's not just she's not in it alone. Um, I, I love. Ugh, there's so much we could talk about in the book, but that's. Uh, we would go all afternoon, and I, I sadly have to break off the uh, podcast here. But I'm gonna I'm gonna end uh, end it this way, Stephen. You and I have not offline or online had the uh, rise of Skywalker discussion, and we need to because um, uh, regardless of where our political worldviews lie, our rise of Skywalker worldviews I feel like are fairly different at this at this pace. So I want to challenge yeah, you. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, well, uh, I, I've got a. We were talking on the last few weeks. I, w- I was talking about it with um, Mr. Steve Glosson and uh, Scott Reif and our last few co-hosts, and we were talking about um, the rise of Skywalker and why we think it's including myself it's there's some very underappreciated themes that i think are unrecognized from that film but we'll have to dig into that one so i'm going to extend an invite to you steven we'll come back in a few weeks and talk about rise of skywalker i would like that i like it i like it and uh, and we'll get an update on the book here's what you need to do right now i should have said this right at the beginning but uh if you're still listening right now it is time to order because listen are you sick of star wars being political that's the question mark if the answer is yes then there's one thing you need to do right now, which is go to starwarsreport.com slash forcebook, all lowercase, forcebook. And that takes you right to the Center Street page. You can buy it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple, Google Pay. Everything's right there. Um, and buy this book. Get a bunch of copies for Christmas. Any Star Wars fans in your life who may have been may have pulled out like I have, pulled out of Star Wars fandom because of the you know, more charged and political and negative experience that it's had recently. This is a wonderful antidote to that, Stephen. And thank you so much for uh, letting, well, for me personally, letting me be a part of the journey in any small way where we talked about it as you were writing. And I was just so excited to watch this come to fruition. So thank you for that. And thank you for your time on the show today. Thank you for being an advocate for this book. And just so your listeners know, right now on Amazon, you can buy three books for the price of two. So you can buy, you get three copies just by, um, just by, by paying for the price of two. So it's going to nice. be, it's a great promotion. It's really good stocking stuffer. And I, I know your friends and fam will love it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Check it out. StarWarsReport.com slash force book. Steven, tell the good people where they can find you on the internet. Oh, you'll find me uh, creating tr- trouble on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent 89. That's Stephen underscore Kent 89. Nice, nice. Follow him there. You can also follow us at Star Wars Report on Twitter. Facebook.com slash Star Wars Report. Uh, shoot us an email, Star Wars Report at gmail.com. And of course, anywhere where you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, iHeartRadio, I don't know, any of the apps that you listen to, rate and review, we do appreciate it. We continue our countdown to episode 501 of the Star Wars Report. The final episode falls in the new year, so stay tuned as we have more awesome guests like Steven in the near future. But until next time, it's been Riley and Steven saying, may the Force be with you, and remember, many Bothans died to bring you this podcast.
That's a show, sir. Woohoo. All right. We well did it. Well said.